0: Deal. um okay <clears throat> just as a reminder you can post any questions in the chat window and i've got it pulled up on my screen so i should be able to see it if i don't blake will break in and and let me know that uh that there's a question there that we can address um but we're going to go ahead and get started i want to remind you of where we were last week as we were talking about the Davidic covenant, we've been on that for the last three weeks or so. We're moving out of that now. Uh, but you never really leave it. Uh, so we're, we're, we're always keeping an eye on the Davidic covenant. Just as a reminder, remember, uh, God had made a, a promise to David that he was going to establish his kingdom. He was going to establish his line for, forever. And really what we see in the Davidic kingship, uh, there we go. Uh, what we see in the davidic kingship and the the davidic covenant is that everything that that Yahweh had promised to the patriarchs and to Moses was now coming true in the house of David. And so last week the question was asked what, what's the relationship between Abraham and and David and 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 these and really th- there's probably a lot of things that could be said about it but one at least is that the covenants are being specified into a line you remember in genesis the the point the theme really in genesis is here is this seed that's promised from genesis 3 and we're going to trace it all the way through really the old testament to show where god is going to bring about this seed that's going to crush the head of the serpent through the Children of Israel, through the nation of Israel that he created. And so part of his bringing about this seed is creating the nation of Israel out of Abraham. And he makes a a very specific promise to Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant, but it's just a promise, a a promise, a, a covenant he makes with Abraham that says through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed so he so Abraham is currently or Abram at the time is currently without a kid and uh, he, he's told that he's gonna make him a great nation and that kings are going to come from him and th- there's going to be all of these people and he's currently sitting there without a child and and then he tells them through you all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed and so in you know Abraham eventually obviously has Isaac, and, and on through the, the Old Testament, we trace the lineage of Isaac, the, the people of, of Israel uh, that then come from the 12 sons of Israel, then branch out and take the promised land. And we trace this seed coming, uh, coming through this nation, and we find that it's specified, it's narrowed down to the house of David, is going to be the, the ruler of God's people, Israel. And uh, Saul was rejected. David is selected. And so the promise that God makes to the patriarchs is then specified in David. And in Moses, we see Moses prophesying that uh, that, that the Lord is going to raise up one like him who is going to lead the people. And we see it now, obviously, narrowed and specified, declared in the house of David. And the benefit now is the ex- or the expectation, I should say, is that the whole world is now expecting to profit spiritually in the benefits that David is going to provide as king, ruling in and uh, exercising dominion uh, as as sort of uh, if you w- if you will, God's image bearer, uh, God's son, as it were, adopted son. Um, and so you get a lot of that language in Psalm two, where he says, you know, I'm, I'm I'm putting you on my Hill. And, uh, he, he laughs at the nations who scoff at him and he expects the nations then to submit, uh, to David as King. And by submitting to David, they submit to God himself. And so we're seeing it now specified, narrowed down. David is, is our guy and we should be very excited about that. There's a lot of hope there. Um, and then we see that David is, you know, wants to build Yahweh a house and the Lord stops him from doing that and intends for Solomon to be the one to build the temple. But what's what becomes clear throughout the Old Testament, and we talked about some of this last week, was that though at first we see that the building of Solomon's temple there in about First Kings five and on, um, as Man, this is it. This is the climax of of God's dealing with the nation of Israel. Here it is. Solomon is the one to institute the building of the temple. We see, in fact, that's that's not the case. The prophets begin to pick up. There's something more because the nation of Israel is going to go into disrepair after Solomon and and then really disrepair once they start getting into exile and 722. And then, you know, and then the Babylonian exile that comes after that. So we start to realize, no, there's, there's more coming. And the prophets, it's told to them by the Lord, look, that was a foreshadow of what's to come. And so you get to Acts 7, and Stephen is there in Acts 7, and he's preaching to the, the people who are about to stone him. And they're pretty mad, and you know, they, they obviously killed Jesus because essentially their, their feeling is they have all that they need in the temple. Um, they're looking for a political ruler of sorts to come in. And Stephen's point is you you're looking at a shadow and you're trying to celebrate the shadow. Uh, The shadow is not the end. God does not dwell in a temple built by hands. That's only a shadow of what's to come. Christ is King and uh, he is the temple of God. And those that are of his body, you know, are, are the temple of the Holy spirit and, and that that you have on top of that hill is not the fulfillment of what you need. And so you see that in, in Stephen's story where he gets to the climax of, of Solomon's building of the temple. And then he stops there and, and basically says, you've always killed the prophets. And, you, you, you know, you're at a dead end, essentially. And that's when they stone him. Um, so theologically, what we pick up from that, uh, that you know, this Davidic covenant, uh, one of many things is that it's not... Yahweh exalting David's name David's gonna die David doesn't even build the temple really uh it's not about exalting David's name it's about exalting Yahweh's name and we even see that in Jesus who is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant uh comes in and and whose name does he exalt he exalts the name of the Lord and he points people toward uh toward the Lord and and so my hope is that as we move into chapter 8 which we're going to be tonight chapter 8 and chapter 9 that what you'll begin to see, or you'll begin to draw, some, start drawing some parallels between what David has already done, what's been promised David, some of the things that David is going to do in the following chapters, and you'll draw some connections then to the New Testament and seeing uh, a relationship between what David has done and what uh, Jesus ultimately will do in the New Testament, or for us, has already done. And so with that in mind, let's go into, let's think about how we're leaving chapter 7. David is giving all the praise to Yahweh at the end of chapter 7 for everything. This is about Yahweh's name. And then in chapter 8, what should we expect? But that David, who is at the helm of the kingdom of God, is then going to be exercising the dominion of the kingdom of God. He is uh, the captain at the... you know, the, the steering wheel, so to speak, and he's directing the ship of the kingdom of God. Now God is, is doing the directing. Obviously we know that, but, but you get what I'm saying. He, he's sort of, he's, you know, driving the ship more or less and God is ruling the world through him. And so what should we expect, but that David would be exercising dominion. Well, that's exactly what happens. In fact, in chapter eight and following, we get this sort of run of narrative where David is uh, conquering a lot of people. And this, as it turns out, is incredibly important. So the first thing that we see is that not too many years pass after he, David, you know, had his initial uh, beatdown of the Philistines at, Re, at Rephaim. That was back uh, in chapter five. So it was a few chapters ago, David defeated the Philistines at Rephaim, and then he moves into Jerusalem. You probably remember that. And, uh, and takes over the city. Well, not long after that, he defeats the Moabites. He goes into the Aram- Ar- Aramean states uh, of, um, of Zobah and Damascus. And he defeats the Edomites just east of the Dead Sea. Now, one of the things that I think is the most important thing that you can do when you sit down to read the Old Testament is don't just read through the geography like, oh, well, these are a bunch of places that I don't know or don't understand or whatever. You have Google, which is your friend. You also, most of you in your Bibles have maps at the very back of your Bibles. Use those, put those to to really good, good work because you will start to see some very important things that the author is trying to highlight and show you. Now, you'll remember that David has taken a pretty strong stance there in the nation of Israel. He's taken over Jerusalem and he has kind of set his anchor down there in, in Jerusalem and has, has been conquering quite a few people. And here we have the Davidic covenant. And now the author tells us he defeated Zobah, Damascus, Moab, Edom, and Gath, which we'll talk about in just a second. But I want you to look, and hopefully you can see this map. Can you at least see the cities on there? I hope you can make it out a little bit. Um, so you'll notice up at the very top of the map is Zoba, and it's, all the important ones are circled in red there. It should be. So Zoba up at the very top. Damascus is north and, and to the east. Moab directly to the east of the Dead Sea. Edom, which is down pretty much dead south, of the Dead Sea, and then Gath, which is right there in the middle. I want to talk about that in just a second. Um, but do you notice where these places are? If you, if you're, if I asked you to point to the Holy Land or the Land of Israel or whatever it goes by many names on a map, you would probably point to that the word right there that says Israel on the map, and that would be your thought of the territory that was given to. The children of israel well they were given that that territory they're uh, just you know west of the jordan river west of the dead sea west of the sea of galilee uh that that's their territory in fact in jesus's day most of his ministry is centered around the the sea of galilee which is if you take the dead sea which is where you see in and you go straight up the jordan river you'll hit the next lake you hit there is the the lake of gennesaret or the the, the sea of galilee we call it um That's where all his ministry was. That's mostly where his people were located. Then all the way down to where you see Bethlehem there, right near Bethlehem is is Jerusalem. So right there is, is, that's pretty much the nation of Israel, right? Well, then what do you notice about Zobah, Damascus and Moab and Edom? Well, those are way outside what we would think of as the territory of the nation of Israel. What is David doing then? Well, he's spreading the kingdom that That where God reigns, he's spreading it beyond the territories that we would think were were given to him. He's spreading it much further north than we knew Israel could ever control. Much further to the east, he's conquering Moab and Edom down in the south. Uh, We're going to see in a minute he's gone even further. But there's another really important place here. He's taken... Uh, This in verse 1, which will be called Metheg Amah, whose name means bridal of the mother city. And most likely that is the Philistine capital of Gath. It's the mother city. It's the bridal of the mother city, the thing that controls the rest of the the group. He's taking Gath. Now, I want to talk about that in just a second. Let's read the passage there. 2 Samuel 8, 1 to 8, which is in your verse packet. Um, the very first passage there it says after this David defeated uh, after this David defeated the Philistines and subdued them and David took Metha Amma out of the hand of the Philistines and he defeated Moab and he measured them with a line making them lie on the ground two lines he measured them to be put to death and one full line to be spared and the Moabites became servants of David and brought tribute. Uh, oh, David also defeated uh, Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, and he went to restore his power. Uh, as he went to restore his power at the at the River Euphrates, and David took from him seventeen hundred horsemen and twenty thousand foot soldiers. And David hamstrung the, all the chariot horses, but left enough uh, for a hundred chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants of David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took uh, the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of uh, Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem and from Betha. And from Berwatha, cities of uh, Hada Desert, King David took uh, very much bronze. <laughs> so, uh, so David is going into this um, into the, the territories uh, all around, and he is is wreaking havoc. But probably most importantly of all of it is that he is taking uh, he took Gath. Um, that, but, but notice that the author doesn't tell us he took Gath, which he's not afraid to do. He's used the term Gath before. Why doesn't he use Gath here? He uses instead a term that means bridal of the mother city, meaning that Gath was the capital, the head city of the five, the, the five Philistine cities that were inside Israeli territory. We call them the pentapolis, if you will, but, uh, Gath being the capital city You've got, if you look on the map there, Ekron up to the north, then over back to the west along the coast, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Gaza. Um, so you have those five cities, Gath, Ekron, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Gaza, as the five cities that uh, the were notoriously Philistine cities. And. Actually, those cities are still controlled by the Palestinian authorities, basically what what amounts to modern-day Philistines, which is where the term Palestine comes from. So um, what it means, though, that the author identifies this as the the head, the, the city that controls all the other cities, is what happens if David collects that city? If he now controls that city and he squashes the Philistines in that city, he's got control of them all. If you control the main city, the head of the snake, well, you control the rest of the snake, too. And so uh, the author is not only pointing out that David has gone far and wide and conquered all enemy territories surrounding Israel, but he has also gone within and he has driven out or conquered, subdued uh, the main threat to uh, Hebrew, uh, Hebrew people inside what has traditionally been their territory which are the Philistines. He has put them under his thumb by capturing their capital. And what's also been told to us is that God gave them all to him. So this is when you identify the geography here and you start kind of using Google as your friend, what is, uh, you know, Methag Amah? What is that? Well, you'll find out really quickly. That's Gath. Um, you know, you, you, you can start seeing these places on a map you can start picking up on what's being told to you, that the kingdom of God is spreading around the known world at the time. And he's using David to do it. And he's subduing all of David's enemies. But not only that, then he actually goes as far as extending the borders of Israel deep into the Negev. Now, I've added the Negev on the map down at the very bottom. And actually, the Negev is much further south than that. But it was I thought it was okay to, you know give you at least an idea. It's south. Um, he's taken the, as far South as the Negev. And he even went to strengthen himself the Euphrates river, go as far North as the Euphrates river, which I couldn't include on the map because all these other cities would just be specs, but it's really far North. So if you take Zoba and you keep going further North, you'll eventually hit the Euphrates river and that'll bend all the way around back to the South and East. Uh, all the way down into the Mesopotamian region. And so David is starting to conquer that entire bridge. If you'll think back to when we started this and, uh, you know, back when Moses was taking the children of Israel out of Egypt and we started talking about the land and and all of the the land bridge that they currently now dwell in, which is Israel, going all the way back over toward the east where Mesopotamia is and then south where, where Egypt is. David is now beginning to spread the kingdom of God through that entire region and put people under his thumb to the point where they're paying tribute to him, which is a a pretty significant undertaking. Now, the exception to that is the area of Phoenicia, which is just north of Zobah, is... that was the only territory which he didn't occupy. And the reason is actually really important because Phoenicia became an ally to him, which we'll see a little bit later. But Phoenicia is, a, is an ally to him. And so, um, that, so that they're the only exception. Other than that, everyone else, you know, bended the knee to David. And so if you think back to the Davidic covenant that's happening in 2 Samuel chapter 7, you have David and his seed. Being given by God, uh, He's being given kingship, and then being given se- security and welfare for the nation of Israel. But now, what we see is that in David, God is beginning to really fulfill this. And so, uh, we're, we're seeing now in chapter eight where th- where some of this seems to be coming to 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 fruition. And God is, in fact, through David, not only extending his kingship, but continuing the security and the welfare of the nation of Israel to the extent where they're they're growing bigger than they've ever been. And they're conquering people that they've never even thought about conquering. He's got his thumb securely on the Philistines at this point. And that was never the case under Saul. We're we're seeing that, yeah, the the divinic covenant that happened in chapter eight, uh, chapter seven is is it seems to be coming to fruition uh here in in chapter eight and so we even see that the victories over moab and edom are something of a fulfillment of prophecy that was given to moses back in numbers i I want you to look at your verse packet if you can um numbers chapter 24 17 to 19 um I see him, but not now I behold him, but not near a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy The survivors of cities so who is that that's doing that well that's David he just defeated Edom and Moab and you know uh Edom being Esau's people like he's put them under his thumb so David is the Lord is fulfilling what he has promised through Moses and Abraham it seems Already here in chapter 8, we're getting hints of this as the kingdom of God begins to spread around. Um, Okay, so this this point that I want to make here is incredibly important as you think about, hopefully your mind will begin filling with sort of some New Testament stuff too as we talk about this, but since David is Yahweh's chosen king, David's kingdom is Yahweh's kingdom. Now, granted, what David is doing in Yahweh's kingdom is an introductory and very visible form. He's going and killing nations. He's driving out people. And this is a very visible form of God's kingdom. And, but, but as God's chosen king, wherever David goes with the kingdom. Yahweh is there with him and Yahweh's kingdom is there with him. So when you see David conquering nations, Yahweh's kingdom is there. Uh, He is establishing God's kingdom. He is at the the helm, if you will, and therefore he is establishing uh, Yahweh's kingdom. But it might cross your mind at some point, man, this this sounds really harsh, um, we and we t- talked about this a little bit when Joshua marched into the promised land, you know, and and he's going into the to the cities like Jericho and Ai and you know and these cities and he's like burning them to the ground and and you know men women and children everybody is being killed and we're we're going wow it just sounds really violent it sounds really uh, maybe harsh. Well, you have to understand, and this, is, this was true of Joshua, but it, it's certainly true of David. Um, David's neighbors are not longing to live under his jurisdiction. They're not clamoring for the kingdom of God to come over them and for them to sit under its authority. So, uh, so what, what, what has to happen then? If, if someone, if what David is doing is extending... God's very own kingdom, then what what has to happen to people that refuse to submit to God's rule and his reign? They have to die. They have to be judged. God is ruling the world through David's kingdom. And if you don't submit to God's to David's rule, you don't submit to God's rule. And if you don't submit to God's rule. You enter into judgment. And so from, from these nations that are not longing to submit to David's jurisdiction and therefore God's jurisdiction, David strikes down his enemies to establish that very kingship that he is supposed to establish. Um, so what David is doing is, is important. But what we also see is it's not merely that David is just walking into a place and he is you know conquering these people. God is actually giving him these people. The text points that out to us. Look at uh, 2 Samuel 8, 6 and 14. He says it's about the middle of your packet on the first page. He says, then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus. And the Syrians became servants of, to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. That's the important line there that, that you want need to see. The next one down from that. Is the same thing. He put garrisons in Edom this time. And that's, remember, that's down in the south. And um, the Lord gave, again, gave victory to David wherever he went. The Lord is the one marching. The Lord's kingdom is the one spreading. And David is doing it. So what do we then see? It, it's not, he doesn't do exactly what Joshua does. He's not required to do exactly what Joshua does, burn everything to the ground and that kind of stuff. In fact... He's actually collecting a lot of treasure. David goes in and collects wealth and spoils from everyone he conquers. And a sign that he has conquered them is that they pay tribute to him. So people, other nations are giving him money. They're um, basically... It, it, we would probably call it now racketeering, but, you know. But but it, it's when you when you say you know I won't kill you if you pay me, um, you know. And so basically that's what they're doing is they're saying we're servants of you as a sign of our 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 um, our servantness. We're going to give you all of our money and we're going to trust you to then provide for us what we need. And so these people are are paying. Uh, gold. We see gold shields coming from Hada Desert. Um, we see um, and and piles of bronze coming from his towns. We see silver, uh, silver, gold, and bronze actually coming from Toy King of Hamath, um, and he gives that via his son Joram, uh, and all of this is added to the tribute that he gets from all of these kings who are who are recognizing his authority because he's conquered them, or maybe just because they recognize his authority, as we see with toy, Um, they it's added to the collection of the amount of money of nations. He has subdued. So all of this is going into one collective fund that uh, David is very much using. And I bet you'll never guess what he's using it for. Well, he, he for sure is consecrating it to Yahweh. He is, and we, we're going to see this in the text. He's actually consecrating this to Yahweh. And there is absolutely no doubt David is setting this aside for, uh, for the house. His successor is going to eventually build for Yahweh. Look at, um, Look at the passage there that, that I've, I've labeled there. Second Samuel 7, 13, and then first Chronicles 22, 14 to 16. Um, so he says, and uh, he, sh- you remember this, this is in the David covenant. He, this is talking about David's son. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But then you get first Chronicles twenty two fourteen to 16 with great pains. I have provided for the house of the Lord. A hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver and bronze and iron beyond weighing. For there is so much of it, timber and stone, too, I have provided to these. You must add. You have an abundance of workmen, stone cutters, masons, carpenters and all kinds of craftsmen without numbers skilled in working gold and silver and bronze and iron arise and work. The Lord be with you. So it, David is not stupid the the tribute that these pagan nations are giving to the nation of Israel and to David as they submit to his authority is going to build the temple now does this sound familiar at all it should if you think back to exodus the plagues hit the nation of egypt And the Egyptians send the nation of Israel out of Egypt that by the 10th plague, the Egyptians are going, go get away from us. You are a, you are a boil on our skin, get out. And what do they give them when they go, they pay tribute. They give them gold and silver and bronze. They give them all kinds of metals from their house, from their personal stores. They give them gold so that they can go. And what do the Hebrew people use that metal for? Building the tabernacle. So the nation of Israel gets gold and all kinds of metal from a pagan nation and uses it to build the mobile house of God. And they travel through the wilderness with it. And it lasts even up to this day of David when he's king. But then they're going to build David. I mean, they're going to build the Lord a a house, a temple. And what do they use? They use, again, the tribute that the pagan nations provide for uh, the house of God. They give to, they pay tribute to David and they give to him. But that's not where it ends. That's only where it begins because he consecrated this. To Yahweh, to to Yahweh, and then he he set it apart for the house that his successor would build for Yahweh. But David's kingdom, remember, is a foreshadowing. We know now in the New Testament we kind of have the lights on, as it were, in the room. And David's kingdom is a foreshadowing of the kingdom that is still to come, that or that is has already been established by by Jesus, been inaugurated by Jesus, and will be consummated uh, in the. In the end, and what do we see when that day comes? And I'm talking about when Jesus returns, when uh, he eradicates evil, he, you know, kicks them out and, and throws them in the lake of fire, the devil, the beast, the false prophet, all go into the lake of fire, uh, and the Lord is surrounded by those who did not bow their knee to the, the beast. And, and continue to worship the Lord. Um, and the, the new earth is created. The, the curse, if you will, is lifted from the earth. And we're dwelling now with Christ as King forever. We have been resurrected from the dead, or if we're still alive at that time, our bodies have tra- been transformed into uh, bodies that will not face decay at all. And we are living on a new earth with Christ as king here, physically, uh, as, as maybe you might say, kind of like David reigned physically, yet will not end. And what do we see of that day? Well, the prophet Haggai tells us uh, in there towards the bottom of your first packet, he says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, he's prophesying the future. He says, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake the nations. So that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. But then look at how it is fulfilled in Revelation 21 when that kingdom that i've just described of jesus coming down is is finished by the light by by its light light of this nation will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it look at the next one 2126 just a couple of verses later they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations so they're bringing all their tribute into uh, Jesus, here all the nations are bringing in their tribute to Jesus. So we see a foreshadowing in David of the kingdom that is eventually going to come in Jesus, uh, in the nations streaming into it and bringing in their their uh, their tribute. And um, so I I I, I was going to say something about this, but I'll I'll just keep going. And if there's time, I'll come back to it at the end. Um, Toy, king of Hamath, so. You might, again, you might think, well, oh, that's, it's a pretty violent thing. You know, David goes in and he, he kills a lot of these people and, and puts them under his thumb. And that sounds pretty harsh in the New Testament era of what we feel like is, you know, an era of grace. It uh, doesn't seem very gracious. Well, there is some, there are some exceptions. Uh, Toy, king of Hamath, does not have to be struck down. Instead, he hears how David has struck down Hadadezer, who is his, you know, mortal enemy, and he's had battles with over and over. And he sends his son, Joram, to ask uh, for terms of peace. So what we see in Toi is that not everyone was killed, that there are people who were bending the knee to David without being struck down. And what's obvious is the ones that were struck down were the ones that resisted the kingdom of God, uh, ruling and reigning over them. And uh, and so, toy submits to it and pays uh, tribute through his son, and they, they negotiate really a, a a peace treaty with David, and David has has peace with him, and he doesn't he doesn't have to strike him down. It, it's a it's a toy is sort of exemplifying this pattern of uh, kingdom doctrine. Now, hopefully, your mind is sort of drifting a little bit into the New Testament and thinking. What happens to the enemies of Jesus? Those that refuse to bow their knee to Jesus, what happens? Have you read revelation? If you do, it's not pleasant. When you read through the, the, the book of revelation, as it gets, especially as it gets closer to the end, uh, it's, it gets hair raising where there's really it begins rated R essentially, where there's a lot of blood and gore that, that people face because they are enemies of the cross. And Jesus kills them, and they're thrown into like a fire, a place of eternal torment. Jesus describes in the Gospels where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is not a pretty picture by any means. And that that we're looking at in Revelation is very much physical. That's a physical punishment, no less. In fact, much more so, more physical than what David is doing to the enemies of the kingdom of God here in in this passage. And so is sort of exemplifying he's foreshadowing that kingdom doctrine that says you bow the knee to to christ as king and you don't face the wrath of of god's king like we see happen in the book of revelation um so <clears throat> and we see this i've got tons of scriptures listed there in that that paragraph you can go back and read some of those um that people that lay down their arms and seek peace under his kingdom are welcome into Yahweh's kingdom. You, you can see that there. And even in Psalm two that we, um, that I preached on a few weeks ago that we've read and and have referenced a number of times over the last few weeks. Um, there's that call at the end of Psalm two arise kings of the earth. You need to, you need to repent, you know, and David is constantly calling his enemies to repent. Um, All right. Now, then we get into chapter nine, which takes a little bit different tone, because here we see the kingdom of God is not just this militaristic expansion of land and territory. The kingdom of God is also the expansion of grace and benevolence, because David turns in chapter nine of uh, of Second Samuel and he is is benevolent i'm just going to read it part of this look at it's on the very last page there of your verse packet. and david said is there still anyone left of the house of saul uh, that i may show him kindness for jonathan's sake now there was a servant of the house of saul whose name was ziba and he called uh and and they called him to david and the king said to him are you ziba and he said i'm your servant and the king said Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Makir, the son of uh, Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him. Uh, from the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said to him, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Now, let's just pause here for just a second and consider what's going on. David is as part of expanding the kingdom of God it's not just like I said militaristic expansion it's benevolence and grace and kindness that he is showing to uh, friends of his friends um, and <clears throat> and especially the survivors of Saul's family you you need to really pause and think what exactly is going on here and how unbelievable this really is. So one of so, the sons of Jonathan named Mephibosheth, uh, David takes into protection, uh, into the protection of the palace and sustained the remainder of his life as a token of his friendship for his dearest friend, Jonathan. And um, y- you have to understand that um That this is an incredible kindness. And again, your mind should start drifting a little bit, at least to the new Testament, where here you have David taking care of the lame and bringing them under the protection of the King. And what do we see Jesus doing throughout the gospels, but going through and healing the lame and the blind and the sick and the deaf and bringing them under the protection of the King, the sinners and the sick and the sore. And, David is doing essentially the same thing, but, you know, also in a very real sense, too, bringing uh, Mephibosheth under protection. But why does David do this? Well, there, there is a covenant that David made that had to have been some 15 to 20 years prior to this moment um, that he entered into a covenant with Jonathan. And we see that in in um, in first Samuel 20 verses 14 to 17 it says this if i'm still alive this is jonathan speaking if i'm still alive show me the steadfast love of the lord that i may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my from that my house forever and when the lord cuts off every one of the enemies of david from the face of the earth and jonathan made a covenant with the house of david saying may the lord take vengeance on david's enemies And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Um, And then the next one in 2042, then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed. And Jonathan went into the city and so what is, is he doing? But he, bring, he, go, he remembers the covenant that he made with Jonathan. And he goes to show kindness to Jonathan's house by bringing Mephibosheth in. And he gave him three things, really, in verse 7 there. Protection, provision, and position. And he gives them all to, the, to him in 2 Samuel chapter 9 verse 7 um protection provision and position welcomes him at his table gives him a position he's at his table he gives him protection you're in the castle you're living with me and i will provide for you i'm going to give you your land back so that you can uh you can have it you can um you can do you can you know uh harvest you can have security and wealth and you can you can make a a house for yourself um and so you have to consider that he's solidifying um his position by including Mephibosheth which is unheard of in that era when you come in as a new king and part of a new regime you get rid of the old you kill and eradicate the old so that you can solidify your position uh, in, in, your, in, your king, in your kingdom. But that's not what David does. David comes in, and instead of solidifying his position by eradicating Mephibosheth, which, by the way, would have been very easy to do since he couldn't walk, he instead brings him into his, his castle, restores his land, gives him the ability to provide for himself, gives him protection and provision and position, inside his castle and solidifies his position because of a covenant that he made with, uh, with Jonathan, his father. He honors that covenant and is good to him and shows him grace and mercy, even though technically by the book, Mephibosheth is David's enemy. He shows him kindness and gives him a seat at the table, even though he had every right to eradicate him, or that was the, the standard. We even see this in first Kings and second Kings. I've got a couple few passages listed there. You can read later of Kings that are coming into power and they eradicate the older regime. They go through and, and get rid of them. But this should again, draw your mind into the new Testament where we see in Jesus, um, that there are strong parallels between David's devoted love for his enemy Mephibosheth and God's love for his enemies through Jesus. That the very essence of the gospel, in fact, what Paul, it seems, is, is going at great lengths to prove to us in his little, you know, is, is the sort of the center of that argument in Romans 1 to 8 is indicating that we were enemies. We sinned and had fallen short of the glory of God in Romans 3. And we deserve death, everyone, Jew and Gentile, all of us deserved death and we were enemies of God and that's the heart of the gospel is the bad news first that you were enemies of God and yet what does he say in Romans 5 6 to 10 for while we were still weak at the right time you might say for while we were still crippled at the right time Christ died for the ungodly for one will scarcely die for a righteous person David is, is spreading the kingdom of God far and wide, both physically and also spiritually. Um, by grace and mercy, showing it to even people that, that should be perceived as his enemies in Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is a picture of us. Um, children of the old regime, worthy of death and crippled, um, having no claim at all to the kingdom of God. And yet uh, Jesus brings us not just closer to God, but to the table of God that we would be dared even to be called sons of God. That's crazy. Um, I was going to just a little bit ago deal with this, you know, When you think about the relationship between David's kingdom and and Jesus's kingdom, the temptation for us now as Christians is to say, well, Jesus's kingdom is spiritual. And we may, we may even say that to people we share the gospel with, it's, it's a spiritual kingdom, but it's really not. It is a spiritual kingdom. Sure. But it's also a physical kingdom. When you come to Christ, you don't just come to him spiritually. You come submitting your entire life to him, your physical life. The choices that you make on a daily basis should show that you are submitting your life to his rule and his reign. It is a physical reign. So how is that different than David's reign? David is going out conquering nations and sure, he's promising death if they don't submit to his reign. But how is the submission of the kings that are paying tribute to David any different than Christians that are now coming under the rule and reign of Christ that are paying him tribute with their lives? It's really not. We even say our money is God's. We pay him tribute in every way, just the same as the kings of the Old Testament are paying tribute to David. Now, you might say, well, the difference is if a person doesn't pay tribute to Jesus, they don't die. Well, we would have to modify that and say they don't die yet, but they will. So then what we see with Jesus is not that he is incapable of putting them to death as David did, but he's patient. And he knows that he's going to rule, but in the end, he will put them to death. And so... Uh, you know, for us, we are the, the kingdom that we're living in right at this very moment is the kingdom of God fulfilled in Jesus. Now, it's not consummated yet. We, don't, we still struggle with sin and we still struggle with this old kingdom that's sort of pulling at our hearts, um, you know, our, our flesh, you might say. And we still do deal with that. So it hasn't been consummated in that in that you know Jesus hasn't come back and and, and set up his physical a, a kingdom here on earth just yet but what we're living in now is the kingdom of God um, so you know i I say all that because I think sometimes we think as Christians you know every we can't wait, you know, he sings songs about it. When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. And, you know, these, these songs that sort of make us think about heaven and, and, uh, and just, and only kind of looking, uh, you know, toward the, the future, um, you know, but we have to realize in Jesus' death, burial and resurrection, he is right at this very moment, putting all of his enemies under his footstool he's making his enemies his footstool paul tells us that in first corinthians 15 he's making his god's enemies his footstool so right now as he sits at the right hand of god he is ruling and reigning in his kingdom and bringing people into submission to his kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel and when they when they do not believe they will one day be eradicated he's doing what david was doing He's doing that now and in a very real way. And so I don't know. I hope that clarifies some things, but it sort of helps to think it's very physical and very real what Jesus did on the cross. It's not all future. There is a lot that has already been accomplished in Christ's kingdom. Um, There's a question. uh, I guess Blake is asking this. Do you see any parallels between Mephibosheth in David's palace and uh, Jehoiakim in Babylon? Um, boy, do I, I, ho- I think the question is to me, uh, Blake, open your microphone. The question is to me, do I see any parallels? Yeah. Well, to me, it just seems interesting that you have, you have David providing this grace to Mephibosheth. And then after everything that goes wrong in for Judah in in the book of Jeremiah, then you end with Jehoiakim getting raised from prison to the the king's table in Babylon mm-hmm. and I don't know it just it seemed interesting yeah. to me that there could be some sort of connection there of just the lord's graciousness of so he had set his face against Judah and now this is a sign of him showing favor again to them yeah and th- there's strong evidence in the text there to suggest that that Jehoiakim's restoration in Babylon is due to, re- due to his repentance and um and so you know perhaps even even stronger parallels maybe to maybe you might say to the gospel um and I, I i do think i you know and i've heard a number of people uh certainly make hay about Jehoiakim's relationship to the gospel in going your repentance can even be had by Jehoiakim uh who was you know in some in some respects responsible for the the babylonian captivity so uh perhaps yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, but perhaps. Yeah. I'll buy it. <laughs> Are there there any other questions? If you haven't typed it in or you don't want to type it in, you can just open your mic and ask it if you do have one. Well, okay. Um, you know, perhaps that's maybe that's a lot to take in all at once, but um you know, um I, I hope that you know uh the the just talking about the the real tangible physicalness of God's kingdom established in Christ's crucifixion, resurrection. And ascension, don't forget that. The ascension is him, you know, sitting at the right hand of God and ruling and reigning. And that's, you know, what we're in now. We're under the reign of Christ as he has ascended to the right hand of God. So, you know, I hope that that makes sense or I hope that that is is at least uh, uh, helps you to kind of think about the era that we now live in. And what role the church, think about that too, as you, you know, kind of maybe chew on this a little bit more. Think about what role the church plays in establishing and continuing and furthering the kingdom of God. Um, I think that that's a, uh, it, it helps you to understand what we do on Sunday and why, I think.